0: If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and grab it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, When I was in college, uh, there were two classes that sunk my GPA like the Titanic. Introduction to Art History and Geology 101. I took the art class on the advice of one of my roommates was far from a model student himself, but he convinced me to take it. He said, this this class is a breeze. The quizzes and tests are pulled directly from the study guides and the attendance policy is super relaxed. But at the end of the semester, I discovered that he had only been right about half of that. That though he had been right about the quizzes and tests, he was dead wrong about the attendance policy. The attendance policy. Because after I collected High marks on my classwork and high marks in the attendance column. My professor dropped the hammer on me. He gave me an F. He never answered my follow-up email seeking an explanation. And he blessed me with another round of art history. With the geology class, it was a a similar result, but I took a different approach. I showed up every class. uh, I completed every assignment. I studied for every test but I still did poorly. Because this particular geology professor had a nearly impossible standard for his students. When I signed up for his class, I was excited to learn more about plate tectonics and volcanoes, and i envisioned taking this semester-long journey to the center of the earth. But then, I was disappointed to discover that I would spend four months studying rocks. No joke, A significant portion of my final examination for this class was identifying rocks on a table. I walked into a science lab. I was handed a sheet of paper that was numbered 1 to 25, and I was asked to write down the scientific names of 25 different rocks on the table. And on a related note, I'm still paying off student loans. So, as you probably can imagine, I didn't crush this, this final exam. It did not go well. And I was given a D for the semester. And so I never achieved expert status in geology. But I can tell you one thing about rocks. One thing that I do know about rocks. I think it's something that you would not dispute, it's not something that you would argue with me about. It's that rocks are not alive. During a previous semester, I studied biology, which comes from the Greek word bios, which means life. You know, biology is the study of, of, of the organism and in, in, uh, organisms inhabiting the earth, and geology is the study of the materials, processes, physical nature, and history of the earth itself. In the, in the simplest terms, biology studies the living and active, and geology studies, studies the dormant and the inactive. And again... I didn't excel in geology, but I can confirm from months of of focused investigation on various rocks, minerals, and gemstones that they're not alive. They're they're not conscious beings. They, They don't have a heartbeat in their chest. They don't have breath in their lungs. They don't have blood coursing through their veins. They are completely, fully, and entirely dead. And you may be thinking, Pastor, we know this. We get it. You're not providing groundbreaking geological analysis here. But I tell you all of this because the Apostle Peter uses a perplexing and geologically inaccurate illustration in our passage. As he continues tracing the, the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, he uses a strange metaphor for subscribing him. He calls Christ... A living stone. And he calls those who follow Christ living stones as well. So let's read verses 4 through 6. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, built up in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember, Peter's writing to first century churches in Asia Minor who are living on the edges of the Roman Empire and and who are experiencing sporadic persecution, uh, hatred, animosity from their neighbors in the Gentile world. And so in chapter one of his epistle, uh, Peter starts by encouraging them with the gospel. He traces God's sovereign hand um, through their past, present, and future. That in the past, God freed them from the penalty of sin. In the present, God is freeing them from the power of sin. In the future, God will free them from the presence of sin. And he, he reminds them of these things so they so that despite their circumstances, they can still experience peace, hope, and joy in Christ. And then in the in the second half of chapter 1, after establishing this gospel foundation, uh, he provides several commands for them. Verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace we brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, as he, called you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Verse 17, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 22, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then last week when we began chapter 2, there were two more commands. Verse 1, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. In verse 2, long for pure spiritual milk. And what Peter starts doing here in verse 4 is he shifts from spiritual duties to spiritual privileges. In verses 4 through 10, and we're going to look at half of it this week and half of it next week on Easter, he, he starts using Old Testament imagery For the purpose of of proving New Testament believers have become the people of God. In other words, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, they have come to possess all the blessings of Israel. And even in far greater measure than the blessings of Israel. And so before we discuss those spiritual privileges, let's talk about this this metaphor that Peter used in verse 4. He calls Christ a living stone. And once again, this is a very unusual description for Christ. I love how Wayne Grudem summarized it in his 1 Peter commentary. He writes that Christ is called a living stone, which for Peter is a daring metaphor, for stones do not live. And so, of course, we, we, we understand what he's saying, but we also must understand that this daring metaphor is not completely out of left field. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Christ quotes Psalm 118.22 after telling the crowd the parable of the tenants. He says, Have you never read in Scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. If you skip down to verse 7, you see that Peter repeats this exact quote from Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so on one hand, Peter is repurposing an old metaphor. He's he's quoting Jesus, who was quoting the Old Testament, but on the other hand, Peter's adding something to it. He's reminding us this this cornerstone is not like all the other dead stones lining the temple in Israel. This cornerstone is a living stone. And so by calling Christ the cornerstone and a living stone, Peter's leaning into the imagery of the Old Testament and, and, and explaining the blessings of the New Covenant. And the central illustration here is the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple served as the primary meeting place for God and his people. The priests represented God to the people and the people to God. They they would relay God's standard of holiness to the people, and then they would bring the people's sacrifices for sin to God. But in response to Israel's continued disobedience, God exiled them from their homeland. And by sending them into exile, God removed their access to the temple and essentially severed their line of communication with him. And this was a devastating punishment for the nation of Israel. But this wasn't forever. Even during those times when they were far away from their homeland, the prophets spoke of a day when God would restore his people, when God would reestablish Jerusalem, when God would rebuild his temple. And Peter quotes one of these declarations in verse 6. is from Isaiah 28, 16. The prophet proclaiming an encouraging message to discourage people. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And around 400 years later, Isaiah's prophecy would ring true on two levels. For one, the temple would be rebuilt, and they would construct it bigger, better, and more beautiful than ever before. And two, around that same time, the cornerstone would be born in the city of David, and would grow up in relative obscurity as a carpenter's son in Nazareth. And during Christ's public ministry, he not only claimed to be the cornerstone, he also claimed to be the temple. You may remember back in in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And if that imagery is lost on us, the Apostle John gives a little editorial note a couple verses later, and he says Christ was speaking about the temple of his body. And so in Christ, the physical building became a physical body. He replaced the temple. As one commentator puts it, he became the place where God met with his people. He became the place where God's rule was displayed to the world. He became the place where atonement was made available. And yet, for the most part, as Peter reminds us in verse 4, he was rejected by men. To the Father, he was chosen and precious, but by the leaders of Israel, he was rejected. For centuries, they've been waiting for the coming Messiah. They've been searching for the cornerstone. They've been anticipating the king who would restore Israel to her former glory, but when he finally arrived, he didn't fit into their box. He didn't support their agenda. He didn't serve their purposes. He didn't preach their narrative. And some of them were hoping for a military king like Saul who would overthrow Rome and and conquer the nations. Others were hoping for a favored king like David who would experience God's blessing of his every decision. A few were hoping for a king like Solomon who would establish public policy that would lead to the enrichment of the entire nation. But no one was hoping or expecting, or searching for a king like Jesus. They had no category for a king who would become a servant. They had no vision for a king who would become a sacrifice. And so they rejected him. They rejected the living stone who was chosen and precious in the view of their heavenly father you know, I I don't want to step too much on on what's coming next week. But, you know, the fundamental question that we're going to talk about on Easter, the fundamental question of verse 7 through 10 is, is who is Jesus to you? Is he the cornerstone or is he the stone of stumbling? Is he the rock of offense? And it, it may seem like a simple, arbitrary question, but it's not. In our day, people have all sorts of categories for Jesus. They say he was a great philosopher, he was a talented teacher, he was a charismatic revolutionary, he was a selfless servant, he was an unfortunate martyr. But C.S. Lewis rightly observed years ago that there's only two categories for Jesus. He wrote in Mere Christianity that either Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman. Or something much worse. And now we can admit that, that Lewis draws a, a hard line in the sand with this statement. We can probably even say that he draws a hard line in, in concrete. He draws a hard line in, in asphalt. But he's not wrong. His statement is, is built on the foundation of biblical teaching. I mean, John fourteen six, Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no wiggle room there. And in Matthew 25, we get this, this full picture of what final judgment will look like. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and, and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on the right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world for i was hungry and you gave me food i was thirsty you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me and i was naked and you clothed me i was sick you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and the righteous will answer him saying lord when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or cl- naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king lamps them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. They also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? And then they'll answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, yes, C.S. Lewis draws a hard line, but the gospel draws a hard line. The gospel will ultimately divide all of humanity into two categories sheep and goats. And the sheep will be the ones who see Christ as chosen and precious, and the goats will be the ones who reject him. And the harsh reality for the goat is this. They can say whatever they want about Jesus. They can can shower him with compliments. They can praise him for his teaching and his work. But if they don't see him as chosen and precious, if they don't see Him as as trustworthy and true and sufficient and perfect and glorious and beautiful, if they don't see Him as Savior and Lord, then they are rejecting Him. Please hear and understand that Christ is satisfied with nothing less than your first and your best. When Christ becomes chosen and, and precious in your life, then you become a living stone following the living stone. And as a living stone, you experience several spiritual privileges. Let's look at four of them together. First, living stones have union with Christ. Verse 4 begins with, as you come to Him. You must understand on a, on a very basic level that christian faith is not about accepting a particular theology it's not about confirming certain beliefs it's not about endorsing a historical group it's not about joining a community of people it's about coming to jesus and we should understand coming to jesus on on two levels that we we come to him initially and then we come to him continually when we come to christ initially you are you are justified now Romans five explains this this great exchange of salvation. Paul says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in. So that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul is saying is that through the first Adam, he brought condemnation. But then there was a second and better Adam who brought redemption. And, and I don't know why my mind goes here. Um, it, it makes me think about uh, Harry Potter. And and I know that this may be a weird illustration, especially since there was a, a, a season several years ago when, when Harry Potter was, was demonized by certain segments of the church. But... In the Harry Potter story, at a certain point, Harry receives a gift from his late father, and that gift is an invisibility cloak, which allows him to move about without being seen. And when you trust in Christ, an exchange happens, and his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And so in a similar way, his perfection cloaks your imperfection to where it's not seen anymore. His sacrifice on the cross makes your sin invisible in God's eyes. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your mistakes, he doesn't see your failures, he doesn't see your shortcomings, he doesn't see your problems. He sees the Son. He sees the one who is chosen and precious. But you don't just come to Christ once, right? After justification comes sanctification, where you're gradually shaped, molded, and refined into the image of Christ. After your salvation, you should see this this pattern of of spiritual growth. The reality is, if, if you're worship, you know your Bible study, your prayer, your your service, your evangelism, any of your spiritual disciplines don't continually bring you to the foot of the cross. Now if your spiritual practices aren't deepening your relationship then you may be disconnected from Christ. And we touched on this a little bit last week but one of the, the horrifying uh, realities about Christian culture is that you can be spiritually busy without being spiritually changed that you can go through the motions, you can check the boxes, you can complete the rituals, you can show up week after week after week after week without walking into deeper fellowship with Christ. That you can learn a lot about Christ without ever having a relationship with Christ. And that's not what Christ wants for us. He says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come, take my yoke. Learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so that initial invitation is come to me. And then that continual invitation remains come to me again and again and again. So first, living stones have union with Christ, and second, living stones have unity in Christ. And that's unity with one another. Verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In the New Testament, the church is described with, with several metaphors. Some of the most common are the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and the house of God. But here, Peter breaks from the usual descriptions. And he basically says, the church is the temple of God, built with living stones, on the foundation of Christ, the cornerstone, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in it. And while Peter's metaphor is certainly unique, it's really not all that unique. Listen to what Paul writes about the church in Ephesians 2. He says the church is the household of God and it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so interestingly, Paul, Peter and Paul um, use the same illustration for the church. They both use the temple as an illustration. But Paul and Peter both agree that the church is a people, not a building. And you know, we've, we've lived this truth last year. You know, it, I've been seeing on my Facebook memories all, all the, the stuff from, from last year and lots of stuff about social distancing and doing church at home and all these things, kids not being in school. You know, we lived this. For 11 weeks, we couldn't gather in person because of federal, state, and local restrictions. And in response, we shifted online. And it wasn't perfect. It wasn't ideal. It wasn't a a long-term, satisfying solution. But it wasn't the end of our fellowship either. Because the church is a people, not a building. Now, we love our building, we love our campus, we love our location, but we don't gather week in and week out because we have a nice building on a beautiful campus in a strategic location. And if we do, we have some problems. And we gather because we are, are living stones being built up into a spiritual House. We gather because we're united in the gospel. We're united in the Great Commandment. We're united in the Great Commission. And so as living stones, we have union with Christ. And we have unity in Christ. And third, as living stones, we have access to Christ. As Peter continues in verse 5, he says, You're not only being built up as a spiritual house, you're also being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This passage here was fundamentally important to Martin Luther. Largely, the Protestant Reformation was was sparked by his conviction for the priesthood of all believers. that, That under the New Covenant, through the work of Jesus Christ, the entire church has been granted full access to God. But it wasn't this way until Christ came. And when we read the Old Testament, we see that God wasn't really accessible to his people. On Mount Sinai, he told them, don't come near this mountain. I'll talk to Moses, but the rest of you, if you even touch this mountain, you'll die. And in the tabernacle and the temple, we see the same sorts of things. He told them, don't come into the Holy of Holies. This is where I meet With the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, one man is going to be allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. And you know, before the high priest entered the the Holy of Holies, entered into God's presence, they tied bells on his clothes. So those on the outside would know, as long as the bells are ringing, he's still alive. He hasn't been killed for an unholy intrusion into God's presence. So that that's what it that's what it used to be. But then Christ died on the cross. In the very moment he gave up his spirit, the temple curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. And through this symbolic gesture, God indicated to his people: anyone who comes to him through Christ has full and complete access. Yesterday I was reading John MacArthur's commentary on verse 5 and I found it really interesting. He points out the connection between the Old Testament priests and the New Testament believers. Uh, They're both sort of defined by several several characteristics. He said for the Old Testament priests, they they were chosen by God. They all came from from a certain family, from the line of, of Aaron. Um, they, They were taken through a ceremonial cleansing, they were anointed for service, they were committed to obedience, they were devoted to the scriptures, and they were pictures of righteousness for their community. And MacArthur argues that the New Testament believer fulfills a similar standard, that we're chosen by God. We're cleansed by Christ. We leverage our spiritual gifts in service. We live according to God's rules. We preach, teach, study, discuss, meditate, and pray through the Word. And we are conforming to the image of the Son. And we even make sacrifices. Now, we don't make the same kind of sacrifices, You know, our carpet isn't red because we thought we might get some blood on this altar. It doesn't work that way anymore. But Peter says, as a holy priesthood, that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, I think the best answer is found in in, in the start of Romans chapter 12, after Paul has spent 11 chapters unraveling the most comprehensive and, and stunning explanation of the gospel. He moves to the, the practical application of the previous truths. And his first two sentences in chapter 12 are, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable to And And so in short, our spiritual sacrifices are centered on our spiritual worship. And our spiritual worship begins and ends with our spiritual praise, adoration, and affection for God. You know, worship is not the habitual singing of hymns and songs. Worship is not 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Sunday mornings. Worship is not entertainment. Worship is leveraging your time, your energy, and your resources for the glory of God. Worship is transforming and renewing your mind towards the will of God. Worship is presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And the good news is, when you offer these spiritual sacrifices to God from a pure heart, when you give anything to him, it's always deemed acceptable because Christ has already gave everything to him. So as living stones, you have union with Christ, you have unity in Christ, you have access to Christ and then finally living stones have security. In Christ look at the final phrase in verse 6 and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame you know other religions and unfortunately a few corners of Christianity blatantly reject the idea of any sort of eternal security they preach a, a broken gospel and they say, yes, God saves sinners, but you can fall away. Yes, God saves sinners, but you can't really be certain about your salvation. Yes, God saves sinners, but until you reach the finish line, you can't be sure that, that your works are good enough or that your faith is strong enough. But Jesus teaches a different message. During the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. And so when you walk in repentance and faith, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, He promises you two things. First, He will never let go of you. He says, I will never cast you out. He says, I will never Lose those who God has given to me. And second, he will resurrect you. He says he will raise you up on the last day. And so when you believe in the Son, your eternity is sealed. Your eternity is guaranteed. Your eternity is secured. You can't lose it. You can't misplace it. You can't mess it up. You can't blow it. If you believe in Him, you will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we just, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, this, this text uh, feels like, I mean, these, these, six verses feel like something that we could spend several months on and just dig deeper and deeper into these concepts uh, Lord I'm sure that I didn't do it justice today but um, but I just thank you for this word I thank you for these these reminders from from Peter of these these spiritual privileges that we experience as living stones following the Living Stones And Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for all the privileges that it's granted us and the foundation that it's given us. Thank you that you have entrusted us to be the stewards of it, to take it out into Lowndes County. Father, I pray that we would do that. We have Easter next week. and Traditionally, Easter is a, a Sunday morning where a lot of people that don't go to church or haven't gone to church in a while. We'll, we'll come out and repay we'll their respects. And so, Father, I pray that this week you would give us a, a, a boldness and just open our eyes to the world around us. And that we might extend a few invitations. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name.